Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Today, we take a ride through Australian politics and public affairs with Will Grant, Julie Hare, Sarah Eisen and a futuristic hoverboard. We cut our teeth on a confected crisis on campus and religious freedom. Find out whether you can be both genuine and a marketer and ask, is it time for Australia to say thank you and goodbye to coal? That's this week's Democracy Sausage. G'day and thanks for listening to Democracy Sausage with me, Mark Kenny, your weekly fry-up of politics and policy. Now, I'm especially pleased to welcome my guests for this week because, well, they're just so interesting. Sarah Eisen is a political correspondent for the West Australian and is based here in Canberra covering national politics. Sarah, welcome to our humble ANU Policy Forum uh, studio or cupboard or whatever we call it. (laughs) Thank you very much. Great to have you along. Dr. Will Grant is a political scientist in the ANU's Centre for the Public Awareness of Science. He's also a presenter of excellent podcasts like G'day Patriots and The Wholesome Show. Will, thanks for coming along. Thank you for having me, Mark. And you came along on a an extraordinary contraption. I guess it's appropriate <laughs> for, for someone who's interested in science and technology. It was a one-wheel. A one-wheel. A one-wheel skateboard, yes. It, it, it is very science and technology type person, but I enjoy it. It's, how it, I get it, around. it's an amazing thing because that one wheel looks like the rear wheel of a, of a go-kart, you know, a, a racing go-kart. It's a very chunky thing and the, and the propulsion system, the electric motors inside the wheel. Some sort of magic inside the wheel. I, I know we science communicators are not allowed to use the word magic, but some sort of thing <laughs> happens in there that makes it go forward and keeps you flat the whole time. Beyond that, I can't describe it's, it. It's kind of everything up to, but not the hoverboard really, isn't it? Yeah, it's basically that kind of thing. You cross, cross a skateboard and a Segway and that's what it is. Yeah. And how do you stop it? Um, well, you, you lean, dive on the you, you lean back. I've, I've had to stop it quite quickly sometimes, and, and that's been a bit scary, but it's been good. Uh, that's good. And Julie Hare is an author and journalist of long standing these days as a freelancer, and Julie has a particularly, particular interest in education, which is appropriate given that we're sitting here in ANU. <laughs> Julie, terrific to have you along here. Thank you. Now, last week, we might start there with education because last week, Dan Tian, the, uh, the federal education minister, addressed the National Press Club and he talked about a number of things. He, he sort of, uh, you know, like put his finger on a few pressure points in the education debate, particularly the proportion of uh, foreign students that came up, but also the issue of, uh, I guess, freedom of speech on campus. Mm. What did you make of his uh, first address as education minister? Um, I th- it was better than I expected, which sounds a bit mean, but um, the freedom of speech thing is really interesting because he commissioned a review into freedom of speech on campuses, basically on the assumption that university campus- campuses are crawling with lefties. Dr. Will. And- <laughs> I haven't never well, well. said anything left-leaning at all. You, you drive a one-wheel skateboard. Like- <laughs> I don't know if that's lefty thing. or conservative <laughs> or yeah, anything. I'm not sure. <laughs> Anyway, so, you know, he commissioned this review into freedom of speech on university campuses and the um, the review found that there actually was no crisis of freedom of speech on campuses and that, you know, other than a few isolated incidents um, at the very fringes that campuses basically just get on with their lives. Anyway, 
the speech at the National Press Club, um, I don't think Mr Tan wants to let it go. So he noted that there had been no uh, crisis. Um, in fact, former Melbourne University Vice-Chancellor Glyn Davis described it as a confected crisis, which I think is pretty accurate. But um, Dan's pretty keen on this. and so well, it's he, not just Dan. It's the whole sort of political yeah, fight, really, aren't they? Yeah. There's this sort of uh, trope about universities being kind of these – places where there is just political correctness running amok. Mm, and, absolutely. And I mean, he, he mentioned the KILT survey, right, and that talks about yeah. how teachers and students are meant to feel, you know, to, to assess if they're feeling like their voices are being heard. And I was sort of like, well, is that where the freedom of speech issue is coming in? And I, I wanted to ask him a bit more about this, which is about, well, when I look at the university space, I see a lot of visiting speakers and so on, um, if they're from the right, being, you know, protested against, boycotted, and sometimes blocked from speaking. Protests are free speech, though. No, absolutely, absolutely. Mm. And But in that sense, you know, it's also looking at that sort of level of the free space um, issue on universities and that students shouldn't be allowed to to block those those um, speak, speeches from happening. So it was quite interesting because when I look at the KILT survey, I think of, oh, students' voices and teachers' voices and so on. But when I kind of ask a bit further about it, it's also – it goes into that space as well, which there's been lots of different across the country, those incidences. We did some um, we did some work on this, some colleagues and I in America looking at free speech on campus in, in, in Australia and America. Mm. And there there is a very different discussion going on. Uh, we may have bits of the, the sort of campus politics that they have in America, um, but you see a whole range of different things. So you see students um, far more fired up about things that lecturers should and shouldn't do on campus – um, in America, mm. whereas here in Australia, we have a far more um, agreed compact between uh, students and lecturers about what is a, a, the things we can talk about and things that um, are legitimate for discussion. And I don't think this is really an issue that we see so much here. I, re- I really agree with that point that it's confected. Yeah. Well, you know, and the point is, is that, you know, he announced at the press club that they're going to introduce as part of the annual student survey, whether students' voices have been heard or not as part of the actual survey. I think the vast majority of students are just not going to know what he's talking about. Mm. There might be some Mm -hmm. students at the fringes, left and right, who, you know, feel very animated by this sort of stuff. But to ask the majority of kids whether they feel that, you know, there's a, you know, equalness in attitudes being expressed on campus, I think is going to be, um, I doubt whether they're going to be able to get it up. I think it's just going to be unworkable ultimately. Well, it is interesting though, because I mean, I've spoken to students, not necessarily here, but, you know, friends of my son and so forth, who who, uh, talk about campus life and have you know, revealed that there's a sense sometimes of kind of self-censorship among students that you don't say certain things or if mm. you do say certain things on Facebook because, of course, this is a different environment really from mm. when I was a kid at university. It's a, it's a, There's all these different uh, social media ways of communicating. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, only, and, and yeah. extemporizing really, you know, just speaking off the cuff. And so there's this um, – you know, there's some, there's some, there's a sense of prohibition if you were going to the wrong space. I, I do agree with that because having only come from uni a few years ago, there was it's the amount of things that people can you know dig up from Facebook, even private groups and so on. And if it is a little bit offensive, even to uh, one group or something, the, the amount of backlash you can have as a student, especially if you're an a- active in the student politics space or something, mm. it's pretty intense. You have mm. to really watch yourself, not just in the public university space, but online. And we're talking about like private groups, someone making a kind of off-the-cuff comment about, I don't know, affirmative action or something. Taking and things out of context, you mean. Something being yeah. taken out of context. And then because they're big in the student politics space, that they're being like smeared 
in yeah. a big university setting. And we're talking about like 19, 20, 21-year-olds mm. having to navigate that space. So I think this is the this is the big um, duty that we have at universities that is a complex one, that part of our role is education, you know, bringing people into a certain body of knowledge and theories, but also bringing people into being adults and being citizens. And this is what they're, this is what they're doing when they're 18 and 19. We're showing them yeah. a space where you can talk about politics, but it comes with consequences as well. Yeah. And, and they're really complicated. Con- sorry, Will, but it comes with consequences that we didn't really have for the most I, part. I, I totally Sarah agree. did, uh, with the exception, because as you say, you were there quite recently. But... <laughs> <laughs> Just bringing, bringing a bit of that in. That's <laughs> but, but, but uh, you know, for the rest of us, you weren't accountable for the for the things that you said uh, in the in the way that you are now. I mean, yeah. everything's sort of online for good. Well, it's recorded. I mean, basically, yeah. that's the difference. It's, it's you know, a lot of the conversations that people are having now, now are permanently captured, whereas no one was sitting around with a tape recorder sitting in all of those mm. student parties back in the 1980s or 1990s. Yeah. So then is the, the is the question in the kilt survey, are you, you know, a, a bit afraid about what you say, how you say it, where you say it, is then that appropriate considering that new landscape? The thing I'd say on that is all of society a little bit nervous about what you say and where you say Totally. But it does have a particular sort of – it does raise a particular tension with the idea of the university because the idea of the university is about – Freedom of expression and the and the exploration of yeah. ideas. Uh, some of the and in the formation stage of those ideas, sometimes may be an untidy process. People being taken along a uh, a road from a mm-hmm. level of perhaps ignorance about a particular subject through to some level of knowledge and expertise. I mean, that is the transformation that we expect of students is important. If we didn't think that you could change people's minds and, and grow people through the process, then there'd be no reason for these yeah. institutions to exist. I think I think one thing is we do a lot of thinking out loud in universities as well. And that's the yeah. point of the tutorial well, space, you know, where yeah. you're, you're still rehearsing an argument. You're still thinking, okay, how do these different things fit together and what do they mean? That doesn't mean that's your final position and what you will argue to the, your dying day. Mm. It might mean that's just what you're trying for that tutorial or trying for that space. A lot of this also is about um, people being invited onto the campus to speak, not by the university, but by groups on the university. So if you just take the Bettina Arndt example mm-hmm. at Sydney mm-hmm. and La Trobe, and I think she's talking, is it here? Some, no, University she of New South Wales. She was at UWA, yeah, as well. Um, so she's kind of doing a tour. And part of the, the aim of the tour is to, um, you know, incite excitement mm. and to get the the culture wars so you've got the left, you know, the socialist alliance screaming at mm. the young liberals and mm. that's part of the debate. But it gets it gets down to the really kind of crunchy point when you start inviting people who are, say, anti-vaxxers yeah. or, you know, where there's no truth. And some university vice-chancellors are going, so the vice-chancellor of University of New South Wales has made the decision, which personally I think is wrong, that he will allow anyone to speak on his campus so long as it is not illegal. It doesn't mean if it's if it's factually wrong. He will let, like, not just climate change skeptics. But presumably not a Holocaust denier. Yes. That's illegal. Yeah. Oh, it's illegal? Yeah. Well, is it illegal? It's illegal in some countries. I'm not sure that it's illegal here, but it's yeah. um, yeah, it's certainly a grounds for not being allowed into the country. So if you can get into the country, you can get into the campus. I guess mm. that's the policy there. But my point is universities have a very special place in terms of, you know, the development and the creation of new knowledge. And mm. to be able to, to be seen to be um, hosting people who, who basically peddle in lies – and miss and ill yeah. facts is just. I think it does the university a disservice, and I, I think it's just too extreme. I don't know whether he's just you know pandering to the minister or why he's taken such an extreme position, but it doesn't. It really doesn't make sense to me. I think universities should have the right to be able to say no, especially mm-hmm. if the it's, if it's not factually correct. 
Yeah, it's an interesting one. Uh, it's, it's almost like a fundamentalism in free speech. But yeah. you know, there are some values, some universal values that need to be protected by the society. And and things, as you say, if if someone's actually you know spouting divisive hate speak or what you know, or yeah. sort of just stuff that yeah. is not based on that is just designed to erode confidence mm. in science, for example. I mean, what? that's the really tough one, though. It is. You know, I mean, we can we can have some stuff that we can say factually wrong. You know, the uh, the sun doesn't exist, yeah. or tomorrow's going to be well, fr- Friday run. That this gets really, really tricky, and I and I'm, I'm why? Well, it does because that, because we don't talk in the world of science in certainties. We don't have 100 percent knowledge about anything. Science it works on the idea of probabilities and the idea of strong confidence, consensus, mm. all of those kinds of things. And society wants, in some cases, to have certainty. Yeah, that's why we say it's not an exact science because that's what we mean. We mean it's something that gives us certainty. Scientists gives science gives us probabilities and a way of saying. Um, we can look at this issue from risk. You know, the real reason we should act on climate change is not because science provides us certainty. It's because it's a highly risky proposition not to. Mm. Same thing with vaccination, with same thing with a whole range of other sorts mm. of issues. But we can't give you some sort of um, uh, blanket statement of here's something that will be factual and here's something that's not factual. Mm-hmm. And that's it's just not going to be but, the way the world but, works. But that's uh, all that's perfectly valid. But there are things that you can do where the damage that you can do to society by creating, by undermining confidence. Definitely. For example, if you were to undermine confidence in um, in cancer treatments, yeah. uh, mm. then you, you know, I mean, to, for vulnerable p- people who are uh, perhaps... Here's, here's, here's the really interesting stuff. So um, some research came out a couple of years ago. I think some Australian scientists, but working with international colleagues, looked at the, say, stuff like mammography testing, mm-hmm. um, showing that in certain cases, we're better off not actually testing. Same with um, with prostate prostate cancer. Prostate cancer. Yes, there are some weird weird quirks where it turns out, due to a bunch of other f- scenarios, you know how old people are, um, the, how treatment works, those kinds of things, that sometimes uh, the evidence points in a different direction. Now, people that did that research got pilloried by the community, saying mam- uh, mammographies uh, save my life, save my wife's life, whatever. Mm. Um, but science doesn't necessarily always stack up in that way, and sometimes science does muddy the water. You know, we can't provide you a clear precise image of this is what the world is and what's going to happen. One of the other things that came out of uh, uh, Tian's speech I thought was interesting was that he sort of presents some mixed messages really on the notion of the utility of research. And we know that the previous education minister, Simon Birmingham, actually knocked back some research grant applications. Um, Tian at one stage seemed to be talking about there needing to be a a utility to to the research that was done at universities. Mm. And a bit later on, I think in answer to a question, he he, acknowledged that uh, you don't always know where research is going. So I I suppose that's always been the problem. But did you... Yeah, look, there were a number of conflicts and tensions in his speech. He started off his speech talking about the the increasing need in coming years for people with bachelor's degrees, um, you know, knowledge economy, all that sort of stuff at the same time. This government has cut the demand-driven system, which as we're going into a demographic surge of young people. So, you know, there's a real conflict there. You know, the government has cut $4 billion from the research budget in the last couple of years. It's a significant amount of money. At the same time, you know, there's this push for uh, it for research to be um, commercialised. Um, so they don't talk up blue skies research so much, even though that's absolutely fundamental. The Birmingham cutting of ARC grants, it's just a culture wars stance. It had happened back in, I think, 2004, 2005 with Brendan Nelson. 
and all hell broke loose. Not as much hell broke loose this time, but still, it is just beyond arrogance to think that a federal minister knows more about, you know, a research grant from the, than the, you know the experts in the Australian Research Council. I I think. Birmingham at that stage. I don't really know what he was up to, um, but I suspect he was just sick to death of universities, always badgering him over funding and not enough of it. So he, <laughs> it was kind of a finger to them. I don't know. <laughs> well, look, uh, we talked before about uh, freedom of speech on campuses being yeah. perhaps a, a bit of a confected uh, problem. Uh, another one that strikes me as a bit of a confected problem is the one of religious freedom yeah. uh, mm, moving from, yeah. from that it's to the uh, the, thing, this, though, uh, yeah. this bill that the uh, Christian Porter, the Attorney General, has yeah. um, presented a draft bill, Sarah. Yeah. I mean, he's, uh, he's a West Australian. Christian Porter is an up-and-comer. They're talking about him as a potential leader at some yeah. point. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, it's been put quite well over the weekend in terms of how um, it's quite a measured bill. And I, I would agree. There are some um, opponents on either side, which again does indicate that it's quite measured, that there has been quite a balanced reaction of, or it doesn't go far enough or or e- either way. And I think that's that's been quite good. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, it does raise a lot of questions. I mean, the, the Falau cause especially has been causing a lot of people to look at it quite closely and what that's actually going to mean, especially yeah, so, with so, what financial hardship, like you have to identify what, what that's going to be. In a for, for an employee, for exactly. a large employee. Yeah, yeah. They have to have uh, be able to demonstrate some sort of material or financial hardship or um, um, damage to them as a result of an employee expressing their religious uh, views in their in their free time. Isn't um, this a weird trade-off yeah. though that you're putting putting money and free speech so so concretely yeah. into the legislation into the together? Legislation. But it's not but it's not that concrete really. I mean fin- a financial well, hardship sure. it's 50 million dollars. Yeah, and it's only 50 million dollars. That's pretty concrete. And, well, no, uh, you, have to, no, you have to have a turnover of 50 million dollars, not it in has order to cost to, you. To, to be yeah. an and there's like not 95% plus of, you know, businesses in Australia have it's like 2 million. It's it's not going to affect it's you know in terms of the extent to which it's going to have an impact. But it is interesting in that point has been raised from the religious community about what financial hardship means. It's about also what a lot of this is going to mean should it, when it comes into legislation, when it's ahead of the courts, in front of the courts, mm. like how equipped they're going to be to deal with these really sensitive topics and sort of vague things like that when it comes to this term of financial hardship, you know, in reasonable, you know, yeah, doubt, in good yeah. faith, yeah. these sorts of things that the religious community are like, okay, so you've got the court system and those working within it. This is Great, I suppose, a good step forward in protecting religious rights. But how is this system going to then deal with these questions mm. and these these grey zones, these vague statements and so on? So even after this legislation gets passed in whatever form it does, which they want to do before Christmas, it's um like it's going to it's not going to stop this kind of umming and ahhing and you know everyone having different views on, on each how case will yeah. still be worked out on its merits at the time at, at, at every case yeah. so and, it's and, interesting. and look you know I mean I know a lot of people resist this argument but it's a simple fact that the Israel Folau case is a contract law case it's a case about mm, his yeah. employment contract uh, as we understand it, we haven't seen the contract, but our understanding is that there was a very clear clause in the contract mm. that required him to keep views to himself that would reflect poorly on the Australian Rugby League mm. as the as the employer. It's a lucrative contract. It's not different from uh, one that would apply to you know conditions that apply to many. Uh, employees, yeah. particularly ones who have, you know, these uh, well above community standard uh, remuneration, uh, and um, and he actively breached it, as we understand it, and uh, and that's why they were able to dismiss him. Now, it's a matter to be determined by the federal court, but 
what I'm interested in is how is this new law, assuming it does come in, how is it going to apply? Does it mean that that clause in the Falau contract, as we understand it was written, would be mm. illegal to put in the contract? That's an interesting question. Yeah, I mean, I think it is an interesting question. And I, but I mean, even just there being so much spotlight on all of this, I think that's going to have an effect on how contracts are drawn up in, in. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. That mm. sense as well. I don't think that's unreasonable to expect as these sorts of things are looked at by employers to remember and arc back to that case mm. and to this legislation that's coming through and looking at it a little bit more closely, writing it maybe a little bit differently and, you know, navigating the space in a way that has been actually affected by this whole debate and this bill. Yes, well, let's just take a break right there. And when we come back, we might talk about this Tamil Sri Lankan family mm. and, and a few other issues. Scott Morrison's performance, the way the economy's going. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. All right. Well, welcome back to Democracy Sausage. That was a uh, short break. Uh, thank you for uh, you, you know tuning in with us today. I have Sarah Ice and Julie Hare and Will Grant with me, and we're discussing obviously the uh, the, the big issues in, in Australian politics going on at the moment. Of course, a dominant story is this Sri Lankan family, which has been uh, you know uh, trying to stay here in in Australia has been through a whole lengthy legal procedure right up to the high court has been found not to have a bona fide refugee claim and the Australian government is removing it uh, and uh, removing the four members of this family the two little girls born in Australia um, but uh, nonetheless they're being sent back to Sri Lanka and there's a lot of community backlash about this and it's coming from um, not just from the usual quarters but mm. uh, Barnaby Joyce is a supporter of of making a special uh, exemption for this family allowing them to stay here. Uh, Alan Jones, right-wing shock jock, uh, usually uh, pretty free with his opinions and his opinion on this occasion is uh, that uh, the, the government ought to show some uh, some greater humanity here but the government is kind of, you know, really caught, isn't it, by the strength of its own position. Yeah, I mean, I kind of think it is a hard position to be in, especially if you're seen to bend to public pressure that does set, as they keep saying, precedent and so on. But I'm struck in this instance by, like you said, the people who are coming out to support this family, the circumstances they're in. When um, the government and the minister is asked to use 
his discretion and is refusing to, it actually strikes the question in my mind, well, when is it appropriate to then? If not now, when? A little yeah. bit. Does that make sense? Like it just well, seems it does, like such although the case. if not now, when might be, well, when uh, when there isn't a whole lot of public uh, interest in it. Like the ministerial discretion probably does get used more often than we're aware of. Yeah. He said um, this this morning on um, 3AW, he was talking about there's been all these, you know, really horrible cases beyond description with terminally, terminally ill kids and this and that. We've used it hundreds of times. You wouldn't know, you know, there's there's all these cases and now this has come out and just with the power of social media and, you know, what they're saying is a lot of um, things that aren't fact and so on that are being peddled about, again, what the minister is saying, that it's just it doesn't apply in this case. And he's taken a pretty hard line um, despite all that pressure and from both, again, some people you really wouldn't expect and mm. just the wider community. Well, they seem really quite painted into a corner on this whole, you know, holding the line exactly. of, of a very strong um, position on this sort of thing. And, and then not able to bend in this sort of way, it seems. Uh, well, I, I suppose you look at it from the government's point of view and we need to look at these things mm. from all sides because it's a, obviously a, a, a diabolical problem. But the government, I guess, has this fear that um, that the modus operandi for the next family in, in line will be a similar public campaign. And I think what this shows, this whole uh, case shows that there is a latent level of um, compassion in the Australian community. Mm. And when you humanise... Across sides of politics. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And when you humanise uh, uh, asylum seekers, refugees, um, particularly asylum seekers who are found not to have a bona fide refugee camp, but when you humanise them, you put uh, personalities to them, faces, you know, you can see them and you can relate to them. Particularly they, in a small town in, in yeah. uh, rural Queensland. Yes, where that's can, right, but even A whole beyond. community can, well, a whole community knows them and can point to those yeah. people as opposed to abstract people that may be on a um, settlement camp in the Pacific. Side. That's right, and pictures of, you know, uh, people sitting on boats and so forth. I mean, we know there's a high level of concern in the public about it, but it's, uh, it's, it's easy to look at them in a kind of an abstract way, yeah. but as soon as you you know these people become real to us, uh, it does become very very difficult. And this is the the diabolical problem. Would the next family, if this one was allowed in, would it uh, also think, well, that's my 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 uh, route to, uh, to staying in Australia? Yeah. I mean, that's a bit sad. Then when we talk about with this setting of precedent, so you're setting the precedent of you know humanizing. And, and isn't the point of yeah. ministerial discretion is that it doesn't set precedent. It's a minister's choice mm. um, how to interpret the policy, which is the precedent. Yep. The policy is the existing underpinning mm. Yeah, precedent. but I, I, that's true. But I wasn't really talking about a legal precedent yeah, or yeah. even a ministerial one. I'm talking about a precedent for behaviour. Yeah, so, from, the, from yeah. the public and so on. And I, one thing, it's almost, it is that sad thing of, you know, we're, we are humanising them and we don't want that to happen again. Again, we don't want people. Yeah, don't you think? No, that's what it is. It's literally, and you've nailed it in terms of, mm. you know, it's a very abstract idea. There's numbers of boats of people on boats. You know, years ago when we had these campaigns against, um, you know, the boats coming in, you just see lots of feet going yep. past, no faces, yeah. and yep. now you've got this. Um, this family who everyone knows their names now, everyone knows their faces, and it's showing the power of that, and that's quite. That's quite subversive to, to think, how it's been handled. I think it so much shows, yeah, as you're saying there, Sarah, the, the, the power of stories here. That, that at this point, the stories have gotten away from, um, from Peter Dutton, um, that the stories have taken hold in the national consciousness. And that's because humanizing, allowing the story to go out there has been a huge part of this. And I, I can see that's the precedent. I'm just wondering what damage it's doing to the government, to Morrison, because, you know, Morrison is very proud of his Christian credentials. So that means that compassion must be one of his, you know, fundamental traits, one would think, as someone mm. who sort of wears it on his sleeve. At the same time, here we are as a government being deeply 
uncompassionate towards a family mm. um, who have been very humanised. Mm. And I'm just wondering whether there's any cracks between the whole Dutton-Morrison, you know, one's holding strong, the other mm. sort of feels you can't intervene. This is, is this the beginning of, you know, the fallout from last year's... Uh, or am I overreaching? Well, I think, look, you might be. <laughs> but, but I will say this. There has been a suggestion that, and I can't verify this, I can't say this is a fact, but there's certainly been, uh, you know, rumour running around and some some reports of this, that there is a split between David Coleman, the immigration yeah. minister, mm. and Peter Dutton, that Dutton does not believe that there should be a special exemption made here or exception, mm. uh, but... Um, uh, but that uh, the immigration minister David Coleman maybe is uh, takes a softer line. So obviously, uh, you know Dutton being the senior minister and you know much more uh, authoritative in the government and uh, uh, you know is a very big noise in the in in the coalition. Um, I guess you know his position is going to prevail. Mm. But so I can't speak with authority to that division. But it wouldn't be surprising. Yeah, I mean, and Dutton raised an interesting point this morning, though again on three AWU when I was listening in about you know the importance not to have those cracks show, but in leadership and in the community because of um, the sophistication of people smugglers and how they like grab on and they're very opportunistic should there be any kind of line from uh, any minister or PM that shows compassion or whatever that these very sophisticated people smugglers will grab that and use it as a marketing tool to go look there is that cracking compassion there is that this there is that and that. I assume that that interview itself probably derived from a front page picture I think on the Australian that of showed the, yeah. another you know and, and talked about an increased rate of boats coming from Sri Lanka so well there's that, one here there's one on the way now yeah, yeah what is it it's morning, the yeah. sixth one since May right yes in, from Sri Lanka and he, he named Sri Lanka as the the biggest one of um yeah concern beyond even Afghanistan this morning when talking about those those numbers. Well, this issue of how the how uh, Morrison's performing is uh, quite topical here because uh, we have a question from Liam Hughes came in on Facebook, and Liam asks what do panelists think of the Morrison government's p- performance so far, and this is in the context of um you know what has been a, a fairly a clear attempt by Morrison in the wake of all the tumult that the coalition put mm. the country through. Uh, Morrison's attempt over the last year really to sort of calm down politics, to quieten things down. I mean, he's obviously running a much more unified show yeah. than we've uh, become used to on either side of politics yeah. really for for a while. So uh, any thoughts, uh, Julie, on that? Um, yeah, I, I, I think it is. It's, it seems very settled and very calm. You know, after after the last August and up until the lead into the election, you know, it was just a rolling catastrophe, wasn't it? It was just, it was just a complete disaster. And mm. I think... You know, a lot of us expected that to continue. Obviously, he's got better advice and he's listening to better people and he's got better people around him and maybe just being in the position has a gravitas and he's, just that, better, and he's actually stepped up to the mark and surprised quite a lot of people in the community. But he does seem um, – someone said to me yesterday that, you know, the thing with him, there's this genuineness to him that what you see is your, what you get and, you know, that – the idea that he's just a marketer is actually not true. He's a he's a very sincere person, and there's not a lot of complication going on. He's not a Turnbull, and it's working for him. It seems mm. to be working for him very well. Well, that's an interesting uh, perspective, isn't it? Because you couldn't really get to things that are further apart than being genuine and being a marketer. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You'd be surprised. Well, in politics anyway. I mean, there's a lot of spin in this game, as you know, yeah. a lot of uh, presentation of things mm. in favourable way and mm. so forth. What do you think, Will? Are you getting I, a sense that I he's really uh, think Howard he, Mark II? 
I don't know if I'd go so far as Howard Mark too, but I think one of the things that he's definitely done that Howard successfully did for so many years is quieten down those tensions in the party, that he's brought together um, the different sides. I don't think they've fully reconciled and they'll still have fights over different sorts of things. But I think they've come to a place now, the the different factions within the Liberal Party and the Nationals, um, to say, this is okay. We can work with this. We can go forward like this. We'll each get uh, components of what we want. And I think he's found a place that will keep them happy and, and keeping those sorts of fights out of the front page of the newspapers. So. It's a really interesting point because he, he has <laughs> the advantage of having won an election that everyone thought he would lose Absolutely. And, exactly. not, and not having either Malcolm Turnbull or Tony Abbott in the party room yeah. with him anymore, which is you know a great boon because they were the kind of lodestars of division within, within the coalition. And it was really interesting. It is interesting to think about how much personality matters because, uh, for example, you may recall before the election at one stage, Tony Abbott, when he was still in the parliament, said that it was okay now for the government to go back to the Paris targets because, which he'd then, you know, spent some, he'd first embraced and then decided to walk away from and was then re-embracing because he was saying now that, now that, uh, uh, Malcolm Turnbull was no longer there. Uh, you know, they could uh, they could look at this issue afresh, and they could recommit to those mm. targets. So it was it was almost about saying, I can't believe in the government's position when Malcolm Turnbull's running it, but I'm happy to go with with Scott Morrison. I just I just ask a question though: Is Barnaby Joyce turning into Scott Morrison's Tony Abbott? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> The only, uh, I guess, the only saving grace there is that he's not in the Liberal Party. Yeah, he's, he's mm, but he's on the back bench, and yeah, yeah, he can muckrake, but I don't think as successfully yeah. as Tony Abbott. Could. Mm-hmm. It's a very good, very good point though, because he does seem to be quite, uh, quite free with his opinions, yeah, as, definitely. as he always has been. And when he and came in, vocal, he was definitely. often referred to as the thirty ninth vote, you know, because when he came in initially, he came in as a senator mm. uh, back in two thousand and four, I think it was, and that was the time when Howard. You know, it sort of ended up being a poison chalice in a way, but how it ended up with control of the Senate, control of both houses. But he needed that 39th vote, which was Barnaby Joyce. Now, you'd expect that's fine because he was a member of the coalition and all that. But Joyce was quite a renegade and on a whole range of things, including, you know, uh, facilities for regional universities and a range of other things. He, he broke ranks. Um, I'm wondering, because, you know, your question's a good one, Julie, whether Barnaby Joyce in his post, you know, he's sort of peaked, ended up being Deputy Prime Minister, Acting Prime Minister, all that sort of stuff. Is he now going back to a bit of the renegade, but this yeah. time in the lower house? And he is having something of a midlife crisis after all. <laughs> <laughs> with all harsh. his difficulties, his financial difficulties, he makes <laughs> him with everyone who's stuck. crisis, I think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It is the classic. It is. <laughs> Now, one of the other pieces of feedback that came to us through the week was from Mark Zanker, and he uh, he sort of reflects on uh, the issue of um, uh, what what he calls uh, the sort of, I guess, the conflict over the issue of technology and energy and climate change. You talked about climate change before. He says, while we face an existential crisis of climate change, we still want to support oil and gas exploration. And he's sort of you – know, what, what do you think, Will? I mean – <laughs> Yeah, over to you, Will. You, you want me to say what I think on this? I want you to say I, what you, know, you think on this. You know this. what I really – the thing that really surprises me is there, there are so few people um, out there in um, advocacy world who are willing to say, no, we need to shut down the coal industry. You know, I'm, I understand that coal has done so much for Australia and for the world. Um, the 20th century – a terrible century that it was, but um, brought so many people out of poverty in part by cheap electricity, cheap energy, and that has been delivered by coal. Heating, electricity, all things around the world have been delivered in that. So, so I think we should say as a society now, um, thank you. 
to what coal has provided to the world. However, we now know, and we've now known for 40 years or probably actually a fair bit longer than that, we know that coal is causing huge problems into the future. Um, and these, these problems can be shown, not just climate change, but locally around coal plants, all of the health issues. And at some point we have to say, uh, coal should not be part of our future. And just because um, we here in Australia have um, a huge export industry, brings us in lots of money, doesn't mean either that we should be doing that or be that the world is going to want our coal in 10 years, 15 years' time. Mm. I mean, it's a scary thing to say, especially like I come from WA. So like especially – I'm a Queenslander. Well, there you go. I'm I mean, from the Hunter Valley. Well, look at us all. <laughs> is you that just, right? You just see all the – I suppose the numbers and the reliance and all of this and it's a scary thing when we're going into, you know, a time of uncertainty to think of a, a rug in some sense that has been our reliance on this industry in the past just being kind of – Pulled. When you say shut down, it seems very light switch, it, and which wouldn't be, of course, but it does really feel and can be definitely spun in that way of it feeling like a rug from under you. What is going to catch you? Where are you going to end up as a as a national or a state economy? What's going to happen? And I think that's a really difficult thing to grapple with. I I completely accept that, and I completely see that we have you know individual community, individual people, families, communities, and states, and the whole country um, is deeply enmeshed into this economy. But I think we've got to start moving to that that transition economically but also rhetorically we've got to you know we've got to say things like yes we can move to a better place and there are you know we look at townsville and there are far more jobs actually in the green economy than there than that would come out of um, any local coal mining work so th- there is a future for the australian economy in mining there is there are a lot of things to mine other than coal i mean lithium needs a lot of mining there's a there's a lot a lot of futures here but we've got to start talking here seriously about the role that coal plays in a terrible climate in the future. But we don't have the price signals. Now, you wrote a piece recently <sighs> yeah. on the history of climate change mm. and the climate change policy, I guess, um, uh, for policyforum.net, uh, which I would uh, commend uh, listeners to go and read. Um what, what, so, what is 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 the problem? The absence of price signals, like we don't have uh, the you know we had the we, we had so many attempts at at putting those price signals in, having a market based system for carbon emission trading and so forth. Is that the problem? Uh, look, I think it's a huge part of the problem, and I know that um, a lot of climate economists would say the the best way to do this is to price price our atmosphere and to Isn't say it the only way to do it. it? <laughs> Realistically, it is. It, it really is that we need some sort of price signal. The interesting thing here is you know we've seen over the last. Um, couple of months, a bunch of people in the coalition have been advocating for nuclear power. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I don't have a dog in the fight of nuclear power. I have a dog in the fight of climate change, and I think we should be doing as much as we can, as quickly as we can, to solve climate change. And there are scenarios where nuclear power can can resolve that. Um, but the only scenario in which nuclear power makes sense in Australia is when we have a carbon price. You know, when when the price of other competing electricity is brought down is brought up by um, by the carbon price. Mm. So yeah, I think that's the problem. Is it going to happen? A carbon price? Wow. Well, it's it's the third rail. I mean, you just can't imagine a situation where Labor is going to advocate it from opposition mm. at the moment. At least not. I mean, there are various mm. ways in which there is a de facto carbon price, of course, but um, the idea of an emissions trading uh, system, mm. we, we saw what happened to Labor with it and we've seen what happened to Malcolm Turnbull, you know, just for sort of uh, supporting it for a period of time. He lost his leadership effectively twice over climate change. And other issues, but it was climate change in 2009, and uh, it was still in the still in the mix with the neg and everything else in uh, in 2018. You know, it's a uh, politically speaking, it's extremely hard to see any any progress in the yeah, short term. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, but it's been interesting. I mean, I I've been interested to talk to a lot of different people about 
um, you know, the potential for nuclear. I've talked to people from the renewable sector and so on who've been like, you know what? Yeah, like, like we should look at it. The waste thing keeps coming mm. up in terms of what we're going to do with that and just looking ahead and thinking, okay, we, we want sustainability when you're looking at waste and what on earth to do with waste. I mean, that's just Surely a big somewhere flag. in WA we could put it. Ha, yeah, exactly. somewhere in the middle of nowhere, of course. <laughs> uh, most middle of nowheres actually have people there. So. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> they, exactly. they do tend to, don't they? Yeah. I'm amazed that I've ended up talking about this with someone from Queensland, someone from the Hunter Valley and someone from, <laughs> yeah, from WA. WA. It's just uh, extraordinary. <laughs> I, just, I come from where they just make wine and, <laughs> and tough art. life, tough life. Yes, <laughs> it sounds hard. Well, look, it's been an absolute pleasure having you all here uh, for uh, Democracy Sausage. Uh, if you want to, uh, you listeners want to get uh, get to us and uh, make some comments, pr- provide us with a question or two, you can uh, come to us on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum. The Facebook group is Policy Forum Pod, and the email is podcast at policyforum.net. So thanks for being with us again on Democracy Sausages. Thanks, Will. Thanks, Julie. Pleasure. And thanks, Sarah. It's been great. Thanks. See you next week. Thank you. Thank you.